Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hello, listener. Is it me you're looking for? As brands, we're always wanting to make a connection. To find the person you can rely on. The one that's there every week, month, or year. And always has your back when you need them the most. It's a little like matchmaking, don't you think? With ACAST podcast ads, you can filter for your exact dream audience so you can find the ideal customer for your business. The Romeo to your Juliet, the Rachel to your Ross, the Bert to your Ernie, and avoid those red flags and time wasters. Your ads can communicate with them in the most intimate way possible. A one-on-one conversation, a chance meeting in the gym, or a coffee shop. So go on, give it a try. With over hundreds of thousands of listens a month, your person is probably here. Get closer to your audience. Make podcast ads with Acast. Head to go.acast.com to get started. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. 
As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Jonathan, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you, Srini, for having me. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I, as I, I mentioned to you before we hit record here, um, actually stumbled up on your work by accident in, the, in one of those you know, late night Google searches where you search for one thing and it sends you down a rabbit hole of links and somehow I ended up on your author page on Amazon uh, and was just kind of blown away, not only by the, the book reviews, but um, what your work was about. And so I immediately ordered a copy of your book and read it rather quickly. So I am very thrilled to have you here. Uh, but before we get into that, I think I want to start by asking you what I feel is a very relevant question given the nature of your work, and that is where in the world did you grow up and what impact did where you grew up end up having on the choices that you've made with your life and your career? All right. So uh, first of all, let me tell you that I'm excited to be on your podcast and uh, that, uh, you know, I think that uh, the kind of people that are listening to your podcast are my tribe, you know, like uh, creative people and nerds mm -hmm. and the kind of people that go on a Google search and find themselves three hours later, not knowing where the time disappeared. Yeah. So uh, that's us. Um, so my name is Jonathan. I was born in a small village on the outskirts of Jerusalem, Israel, which is where my accent is from. Uh -huh. And uh, my parents uh, were born in Russia. So they emigrated uh, to Israel, Jews from Russia. Um, and uh, growing up in the Middle East, in the Holy Land, uh, is something that is very unique. And I would say that it definitely influenced who I am. Uh, it, it kind of forced me uh, to be a peace activist. I guess, the, I guess if you're born here in the region, you're either forced to be a maniac <laughs> or a peace activist. Uh, so um, I guess uh, that, that's, what, uh, that, that's how it you know, influenced me. And um, as far as uh, art and creativity and stuff, how did it influence me? I guess that would be a, long, a longer answer. Which um, I'm happy to talk about, which I would love to hear. Actually, so how, how did being born in Israel? I think you know uh, the biggest thing that influenced me creatively and that made me uh, an entrepreneur, a self-employed person, an artist, an author, whatever you want to—all the titles. Um, the biggest thing that influenced me was not so much the place uh, in which I was born or the society to which I was born. It was mostly my mother. Uh -huh. She is a tough cookie. She is a crazy woman. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, she's amazing. Um, you know, without much money, she raised uh, five kids, um, all of whom I find very successful. Um, and she basically, you know, never bought us, you know, 
presents or gifts or whatever, but um, used the money to further our education. So she would send us to different classes and she would, um, from the age of nine, 10, she would encourage us to work, like to actually earn money. And um, she would praise everything that we do as if, as if we were, you know, Michelangelo's and uh, uh, Jean-Paul Sartre and uh, the, the most important, like when I was on the stage, she would marvel and say that I am the next Tom Cruise. And I would, she was just uh, very, uh, she, over the board, positive, never said a bad word about our performance in school, um, but she expected us to excel. Uh, she thought that we were the incarnation of God on earth. Like, um, very interesting towards all, all the five children. So, um, so being born to such a mother kind of forces you to, to think highly of yourself um, and to not want to minimize yourself or to shrink yourself uh, or to you know, play it small. You really want to play it big because... Um, you know that back home she expects you to you know to be the leader in school and to be the leader in in the theater play and to be the you know the best in whatever it, whatever it is that you choose to do so um yep i would say that uh, that's the biggest influence on wow okay five siblings uh one what birth order are you and uh are your siblings like you in in terms of their uh creative interests uh and then the other piece uh, that I'm, I'm wondering about is uh you know having grown up in an indian family obviously you know i, I think we share some interesting similarities in terms of cultural values with uh indians and russians because i've had people of russian descent here and mm-hmm. I have found that there's almost uh, a sort of overachiever uh, mentality baked into the way that we're raised. Is that, did you find that to be your experience as well? Well, I guess a few questions here to answer. So first of all, I am the middle. So I'm number three out of five, Uh um, which is, which is, you know, it has its, its own uh, advantages and disadvantages. I think it made me realize, um, not realize so much as become a bridge. So I kind of, in, in my personality, I like to bridge between groups, uh, like the older two and the younger two, and uh, Israelis and Palestinians and artists and non-artists. I, I like to bridge and to explain and to kind of, you know, to, to be the, the mediator. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as Russians and Indians, first of all, I'm interested to know about you, Srini. Um, how many siblings do you have? I have one sibling and uh, she's a doctor. Mm -hmm. And where were you born? I was actually born in India, but grew up all over the world, Australia, Canada, Texas, then Southern California. Mm -hmm. So I would say that, um, that, yeah, for sure that there are similarities between uh, Russians and and, um, Indians and and Jews and et cetera. But I would say that um, one of the biggest gifts and challenges that the child can go through is being an outsider and being uh, a child of immigrants. Uh-huh. And, uh, the more biographies that I read of successful people, the more I, I come to the conclusion that in some ways you have to go through your parents, you have to go through difficult stuff. And uh, being a child of, of immigrants, you know, you, you're, you're being planted with the seed of, you know. So for me, 
personally, my parents always had an accent. Mm-hmm. And uh, Israel is a place that, uh, you know, it's so funny, like 60 years ago, 70 years ago, everyone had accents here, right? Because everyone basically were immigrants. So everyone, you know, all the Jews that came here in, you know, in the end of the 19th century and the 20th, beginning of the 20th century, um, you know, were all from Russia and from Egypt and from uh, um, South America. And so, so there was always an accent. Because of that, I guess Israel uh, is kind of, you know, very sensitive about accents and is really trying to create this new Israeli Jew. And that led to Israel being kind of uh, frightened of accents and of um, multicultural. I'm, I'm sorry to say that, but basically what, what I've experienced as a child with my parents, both having a very thick Russian accent um, is that people kind of looked down upon them. And I would see how my mother, who was very proud at home, uh, would go into a store with me and how the seller of the store, whether a woman or, or a man, would, would kind of um, put them down or at least disregard my mother um, just according to her accent, just due to her accent. So that made me, being a child of, an, of, of immigrants, um, want to like rebel and to like, hey, you guys, don't mess with my mama, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and, and to want to prove and to want to be the best uh, in order in some ways to kind of, to pay for what I felt was a little bit of, um, of a societal, um, discrimination, I guess. Yeah. What, uh, what were the early experiences that, uh, really shaped your interest in creativity and being an artist? And, uh, you know, I think having grown up in an Indian culture, one of the things that I think has always been interesting is that we are very early taught that creative careers or creative thought, you know, the th- things are wonderful as hobbies, but they're not good things to make careers out of. Um, you know, my parents drilled that lesson into me pretty hard when I was thinking about being a music major in college and in the high school band. And I'm I'm glad my dad talked me out of it because, you know, you only have one tuba player in every major orchestra and you usually have to wait for somebody to die for a job to open up. Uh, but I'm, you know, I'm wondering, you know, in your experience, is that been the case with Russians and also are your siblings, uh, you know, uh, artists as well? So... Uh, um, I would say that my siblings are, are kind of, uh, each, each is pretty good at whatever that they do. And I think that what my mother tried to do very much, and my father as well, um, even though she was, you know, she wore the pants in the family. So um, what she tried to do was to rec- recognize um, something good in us beginning, you know, in kindergarten and to harp on that and to develop that. So um, my older brother is in the arts. He is doing um, visual arts, um, like computer-based visual arts. Um, And my older sister is into education and my younger uh, sister is into law. And my youngest sister is into entrepreneurship. So she, she has like two businesses. And, um, and I think that for, when it came to me personally, I think my mother saw that I was an introvert, a shy boy, very timid, 
late to speak. So it took me until the age of three to begin articulating words. And even then I needed to have um, the help of a speech therapist at, at one point in, in elementary school. So I was very shy, very timid um, when, you know, in the kindergarten, when we had a recess, when we had a break and all the children would go and play outside, I would prefer to stay inside and to, you know, draw or to play with the dolls. I was also very feminine. So I think, um, I guess my, my my mother really tried to encourage whatever she saw. And uh, I, I'm going to sound a little cynic, but uh, I don't think she saw much. <laughs> <laughs> this is funny because I'm very full of myself and I'm very confident of my abilities and I think I'm an amazing artist and an amazing author and I, I think I'm, I'm pretty, you know, I like myself. Uh-huh. But um, I, I think that she created something out of not much. So it was a Pygmalion effect. Yeah. She really, um, she, she saw that, that you know, I, I wouldn't be good at sports because I was very fragile. Um, I wouldn't be good at whatever, you know, required social skills because I was very timid. I was kind of small. Um, And uh, she began telling the kindergarten teacher to allow me to stay during the break in the kindergarten and to draw. And she would praise, my mother would praise my silly doodles as if they were nothing short of the Mona Lisa. <laughs> she, would, she would talk about them and she would tell me, oh my, like I, she, she, today she's doing the same for the grandchildren. So she, yeah. she's an actress basically. Um, and, and she's a kindergarten teacher herself. She's been a kindergarten teacher for 30 years yeah. as, a, as a professional. So she's, she's good with children. So, um, so from the age of four, five, six, she was nurturing me being an artist. And I think that what she realized is, is that even if I want to be an artist, it would be good for me to feel excellent at a specific field. You see what I'm going at here? Uh-huh. Yeah. I, I think that many parents today um, you know, are, are doing an amazing work trying to kind of give their children many skills. And I, I think especially in the States, uh, I see mothers you know, driving their daughter from this activity to that activity and to, you know, from sports and to, which is, which is great. But I guess what my, my mother did was to focus on a very narrow thing um, called drawing. And by the age of six, she hired a private teacher. You know, we, we didn't have money basically. So I, I you know, it's just, it's a miracle to, to find how she was able to hire a private teacher. Um, but he would come to my house once a week or twice a week, and he would sit with me. And again, she's a very opinionated, strong-willed woman, my mother. And she forced him never to say a bad word about my drawings, never to correct my drawings, always to praise me, and to basically draw next to me. So she told him, you know, he, he told her, look, I'm not a teacher. 
I'm an artist. Uh, she basically found him. He was a, an immigrant as well and, and uh, kind of trying to make a living selling his drawings. And uh, she told him, I want you to be a teacher. And he, he said, I'm not a teacher. And she told him, that's great. I don't want a teacher. <laughs> I want you to just come and draw and paint next to my son. And uh, he drew with watercolors and then he drew with oils. Uh, and I uh, just kind of copied and uh, that was my initiation into the art world. And I don't think it could have been any, any better because I was basically lucky enough to learn from a master, from a very successful, like, like not successful as far as the business world goes, uh, but this artist was very successful in his technique. Like most Russians are, they have very good technique. Right. Uh, so I was just, um, I was a witness to see an artist at his work. And, and I think that that's, that's a huge thing. And uh, honestly, I think that uh, most of education, and you know, you told me uh, before we, we uh, began recording uh, that many parents are listening. So I would say that, uh, that the, one of the best experiences for your child would be to become an apprentice. Uh-huh. So to, you know, Leonardo da Vinci, I just finished reading uh, the great biography by Walter Isaacson. And uh, da Vinci was at Verrocchio's workshop, uh, an apprentice in his teens. And, and, and that's, that's how you become a da Vinci, in my, in my opinion. You really need to become an apprentice. You really need to, um, you know, to, to assist someone who is better than you. And, uh, Throughout my life, I've always tried to apply this principle, which I learned at age six, uh, to all of my endeavors. And uh, I would say that one of the reasons why I've been successful uh, in different fields, so I've, I've been, you know, I'm, I'm afraid to say that because I don't want the um, audience to judge me, right, mm-hmm. uh, for being too full of myself. Uh, but I have had tremendous success. I feel very honored and, and lucky to have had very good success in the acting field, like the drama and theater and television in Israel, mm. and then in uh, visual arts, painting mostly, yeah. and then in the, in the last three years um, in writing. Like I'm actually I'm selling thousands of, of, of copies of my books each month, which is pretty incredible within three years of, of just, you know, delving into that, uh, into that industry. So, and I would say that it's not about me and it's not about my talent. I would actually say that I'm not talented and I do not believe in talent, which I think you've read in the book, uh-huh. uh, masterwork. I'm very, I'm very suspicious when it comes to talent. Uh, but, uh, I really believe in finding a wing to climb under. And in every field that I'm trying to conquer, I am learning to emulate the best in, those, in, in that field and often to befriend them. And, um, and I think that that's one of the keys to success. Hmm. Amen. <laughs> wow. Uh- <laughs> Uh, A lot of things that came up for me. Uh, I am really glad that you brought up the fact that your mother was a uh, kindergarten teacher. You know, we sort of danced around the edges of it. Um, You mentioned apprenticeship and I I couldn't help but ask you what your current views are on our current educational system and how it needs to be updated. You know, what role does creativity play in it? And even as an artist, how do you think about educating your own kids? 
So first of all, uh, this question I, 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 is one of the fav my favorite ones. I actually, I, I believe that I spend um, hundreds of hours pondering this very question. Um, first of all, I do have a daughter who is two years old. Her name is Sarah, and she is delicious. I love her. I eat her. She's just, she's just a, the, the, the cutest and sweetest thing. Um, and uh, this is something that I'm definitely thinking about, right? So I think that uh, our current education system sucks. It's horrible. It's horrific. And I think that the teachers are amazing, beautiful souls, angels. So notice the differentiation that I'm doing here. The system sucks, but the teachers are amazing. Hmm. Um, if the teachers were given a better system, they would, they would all shine. Um, it's just that, you know, we are, it's a factory really of, 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 of grades and, and stuff like that. It's a, it's a very sad system. So first of all, I wrote a book, 600 pages, but it goes really fast because it's, uh, it's not a nonfiction. It's a fiction book. Um, it's called My Beloved Helen Keller. And it's going to also be published in the future under the title, The Teacher. But currently it's published under the title, My Beloved Helen Keller. And it's, um, it, told, it tells the story of Annie Sullivan, who was the most famous teacher of Helen Keller, the deaf, mute, uh, blind girl born in 1886, I believe, or 1880. Um, and, she, and her teacher was just the most remarkable woman ever. And she wrote a lot about education and how education should look like. Uh, she actually wrote essays and gave speeches, Annie Sullivan, which we just, we don't know her. And uh, most of us think that uh, you have to invent the wheel and that, uh, you know, what was true a hundred years ago isn't true today. But um, but I would beg to differ. She, in many ways, is my hero. She took an unruly, savage-like child who could not speak nor communicate with the world, and she was able to teach her how to read, write, communicate. Did you know that Helen Keller graduated from Harvard? I did not. See, most people don't. We, we, all we know is about, you know, the, her being six year old and I don't know, learning how to say water and stuff like that. Like, we don't know much about Helen Keller. Um, but basically, Annie Sullivan, who was an uneducated woman, was able to bring forth the spirit of one of the most amazing women in the 20th century. And I would argue in the whole entire story of humanity as we know it. So Helen Keller is an amazing woman and behind her there was Annie Sullivan. And let me just share with you a few principles that Annie Sullivan discovered. She discovered that there is no use in having classes. There is no use in, in, in you know, trying to kind of take the world out there and to compartmentalize it and to have certain hours for certain chores, etc. Uh, you know, she had the advantage of having only one student. So they were one on one. Um, so you may say that that's, you know, that's impossible in the current uh, education system, but I would argue that it's very possible. Are you familiar with, with the Khan Academy? Yeah, definitely. 
So Khan Academy is the most important, you know, source that I think that, uh, you know, the parents can, can use if they want to keep up with the Joneses. So if they want to make sure that their children have good grades and stuff, Khan Academy is the place to get good grades and to learn um, in the child's speed through videos and stuff like that. It's, it's you know, it's a very good tool. Um, but I would say that the best way to educate and to educate for creativity and to educate for entrepreneurship, because I think that uh, creativity is being an entrepreneur and being an entrepreneur is being a creative risk-taking person. So I think these, these qualities are really important and the way to do, you know, the way to become creative and the way to become um, risk-taking uh, so having the entrepreneurial skills uh, is through trial and error, is through being out of school. So I don't know if I, if I can, but basically my, my understanding is that by the age of 10 or 11, I would not want my child to go to school anymore, mm. um, but to go and become an apprentice like Benjamin Franklin was a printer apprentice, um, I think by the age of 12. And like uh, basically everyone who was successful was an apprentice in my, in my opinion. Um, and all of the, you know, the nerds that eventually took over uh, the, you know, the internet and, and they took over the different, uh, uh, you know, computer uh, industries and stuff. Um, they were encouraged to experiment um, from a very young age uh, with computers and with technologies. So basically my, my hunch as a teacher, as an educator, as a father would be to, to find something that is interesting for my daughter um, and to encourage her, to keep pushing her, to keep nudging her to do more of that. Um, yeah, but I'm terrified of schools. I, I, I've, I'm still, at the age of now, 32, unlearn. So I'm still working on unlearning and erasing many of the stupid things that I learned in school. So, mm-hmm. yeah. um, so you know, I knew that I, I, I didn't want to get out of this conversation without talking about the fact that you're a peace affect activist because that really caught my attention. And the, the things that I, I thought were interesting is that there's almost a, a sort of strange paradox, right? Because in Israel, uh, military service is mandatory from what I understand. And it's what you do after high school. Uh, so how does the, the idea of a, you know, being a peace activist coexist with the fact that you have mandatory military service? Um, you know, what did you learn from your time in the Israeli military and what misperceptions do you think that those of us who are um, only witnessing what goes on in the Middle East via media have about uh, the region? Oh, each, each question you ask Srini is like an, an encyclopedia worth of... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so... We all have misconceptions, and um, we all have misconceptions about the region, and we all have misconceptions uh, about soldiers. So let me begin by saying that soldiers are the sweetest people you can possibly find. Like, they really are good people, um, very caring about one another, uh, and that all soldiers, Americans, Israelis, 
uh, all soldiers are, um, you know, in their hearts are very good people. And I think that part of becoming a peace activist, uh, truly a peace activist, so after reading a lot of uh, Martin Luther King's writings, uh, Mother Teresa's writings, and mostly um, Gandhi, I actually wrote two books about Gandhi. So excellent, really fun fast uh fast reads that uh, that are fiction so one of them is called six days with gandhi uh and the other is called dear tolstoy yours gandhi about the the mentorship between gandhi and tolstoy and they're both really easy to read and fun and and, and, and interesting so gandhi basically argued and i would argue as well that we are all sweet 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 good 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 souls we're all really good people um and that you cannot fight fire with fire and that only love uh, can extinguish uh, hatred and um basically the middle east is a place uh, in which there is lots of hatred unfortunately and um one of the things that i learned early on is that uh when you bring together people from both sides of the conflict to do something, to experiment, to, to have fun together, then slowly and surely all the divisions fall. So that happened to me. I was very afraid as a child of, of Arabs, like extremely afraid because I, I understood that it, that it was due to Arabs that I was finding myself by the age of five wearing a gas mask uh, in a protected room, hearing sirens and uh, hearing missiles falling. It was uh, the Gulf War in uh, 1990. And uh, that was my childhood, basically. So the first time that I understood who Arabs were had to do with me, you know, seeing my, my mother and my father being frantic and, and worried and hearing my baby sister crying and, and, and feeling like, like I don't have air to breathe within the gas mask and every, all of us confined within a small room. Very, you know, very distressing. So by the age of 12, I kind of figured that uh, Arabs were to be distrusted uh, that they were mean, that they hated me personally, that they hated uh, my family and my people, um, that they should be, if not exterminated, that they should at least be, you know, moved or pushed out of the region. So when I was 12, I was told by this art teacher that I had, another art teacher, um, and she told me that uh, there is this art weekend for, for youth. And I told her, oh, that's very nice, but you know, my mother, we don't, we don't really have the money for this kind of stuff. Usually, you know, these kind of workshops or weekends or camps. They, they cost a lot of money, so we don't, you know, I, I was never to one of these things. So she told me, no, 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 it's, uh, it's actually funded, so uh, it doesn't cost. I was like, it doesn't cost? That sounds odd. W where is it? And she told me, well, it's, uh, it's near Nablus. And I heard the, the word Nablus on TV as being a place with Arabs that is very frightening. So I told her, you know, there's no way I'm going. And she told me, no, it's actually really safe. Um, 
you know, there is uh, security there and you get to paint with the Arab kids. It's really fun. And, and I was like, no way. I want to live. I want to, I'm not, I don't plan on dying. I don't want to die. Um, but she is, is being my teacher. Um, really, uh, really pushed me and, uh, was really into, um, into me going. And eventually she was able to convince me and to convince my, my, my father and my mother. And, uh, so it happened that at the age of 12, I climbed on a bus in Tel Aviv with a bunch of frightened um, 12-year-old Jewish Israelis. Um, and we took the bus and the bus with security took us uh, all the way to Nablus, about an hour and a half ride. And there awaited us something like, I don't know, probably 50 um, Arab-Palestinian kids and we were frightened, like so frightened. Uh, but we were encouraged to come out of the bus, to come down, down, down and to join the, the kids. And uh, soon enough, within uh, you know, two hours of, of uh, guidance, we were beginning to draw and paint together a huge mural. And, um, and we, we had uh, all kinds of sweets and fun food and stuff. And uh, we had all kinds of activities. And by the second day, I uh, discovered that, you know, that these Arab kids weren't about to kill me. Like they, they really didn't want to kill me. And, uh, and that really was a meaningful experience for me. It really was a meaningful uh, eye-opening ex- experience for me. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, and then on the other side of that, this coexists with mandatory service in the military. And, you know, I, I, I've only read things about the Israeli military and, and, you know, heard about it on TV. And then from what I am told, it is probably one of the most elite groups of military professionals in the world. What did you learn from your time there that you have applied to your life going forward? Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com wondersuite. Before Shopify, were you wondering, where my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com listen. Shopify.com listen. Marketers and business owners, you've been pining after a certain someone. Your job's on the line. You're desperate for them to like you back. Here's a word of advice from me. Talking is hot. Just you and them, finally alone, like us two right now. Maybe under the duvet, headphones on, -on one-on-one. Podcast advertising is proven to be one of the best ways to catch their attention. So surprise them while they're tuned in, while the moment's right. Say a line or two that really gets them going. Next time, if you want to win over your special someone and build some brand love, experiment with something new, just focus on your voice. 
advertise on more than 100,000 podcast shows with ACAST. Head to go.acast.com slash closer to get started. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. <laughs> so... so it yeah, it will it will be a little odd what I'm what I'm about to tell you. Uh, I learned that I never again want to be told what to do. <laughs> That's what I learned. <laughs> three years, man. Three freaking years. Thirty six freaking months. Thirty six months in a day. I'm telling you, like yeah. I, I counted. Um, that's a long time, man. And to be told what to do where to eat, when to wake up, where to guard, to climb on a stupid structure, cement tower, and to guard for six hours in the, in the middle of the night, scared shitless, like scared that, you know, they could, they could shoot me easily, like a terrorist could shoot me in, a, in an easier way than I would have shot them. Mm-hmm. Um, I was a target basically when, whenever you wear those, those green uniforms, um, you become a target. It's, it's better, you know, for, um, Israeli haters. Uh, so for terrorists or you can call them freedom fighters, but, uh, it's, it's easier and better for them to hit green uniform wearers, um, than than civilians mm. and so you basically you are you are walking target <laughs> for three years uh, and you're constantly being told what to do and you cannot read during your you, when you guard so for six hours you cannot listen to music you cannot um, be on your cell phone you can just you can just i don't know so so and i would get caught for reading a book you know and then i would <laughs> I would get, I would get, I wouldn't get in prison, but I would get in sort of uh, not going back home for two or three weeks or whatever, all kinds of crap like that. So when uh, February 6th, 2008 came, and that was my last day after 36 months and one day, when, it, when the day came for me to leave the army base and to bring, you know, to give them back you know, the uniform and everything that was on a loan, right? Um, and to to give, you know, my army boots and my doggy tag and uh, all of the socks and my, and my the bag and whatever and everything. And to, when I walked out, I was like, man, never again is someone going to tell me what to do. Mm. So that was, um, that was 
it, it sounds funny, but um, those three years were to me what for someone who has an entrepreneurial skills to be 20 years working in a corporate job. Mm-hmm. So, you know, take 20 years of right. someone, you know, of a boss telling you what to do and what not to do and people evaluating you and, you know, you giving reports and, and asking for a raise and all kinds of stuff like that. 20 years and you really shrink them, you push them, you shove them together. Um, you get three really intense years of, of not being, you know, basically being at work all the time, not, not going home much, right? Um, and that taught me that it will never happen again. And basically from that day on, I was, uh, from the age of 21 or 22, I was never an employee. Mm. And uh, I've, I've always been self-employed. And I think that for me, for my own personality, it's one of the best things that happened. So, so I, I, I think that that's the blessing that, uh, that resulted in me doing uh, 36 months and one day of a service in the Israeli military. <laughs> So as a peace activist, do you agree that uh, military service should be mandatory for all Israelis? No, I think that as a peace activist, uh, all militaries in, in the whole world should be annulled, should be canceled. Um, I think that all weapon factories should be closed immediately. So basically, the weapon factories, it's a, it's a, big, it's a big industry, the arms industry. And, um, you know, People in, in the States are, you know, concerned and, and surprised about uh, mass shootings and, and uh, mass killings and stuff like that. Um, it's, it's only natural to have mass killings when you have weapons. Mm-hmm. You know, what, what are you going to do with the weapon? <laughs> eventually, you're going to use it. Yeah. So if, if you make a thousand weapons a day, eventually someone is going to use it. So basically, I think that weapons are... are um, you know, it's, it's, it's an invention that, that should be traced back. So it should be, it should be um, canceled, I think. So um, I, I would be against armies and I would be um, against all kinds, you know, all these things. For me personally, when I was 19, and I was already very involved with Arabs and, and peace activism, you know, that experience at the age of 12 in this art weekend camp really changed me. So that led me into one thing to another. I, I became a, a very active boy uh, in an Arab Jewish youth movement and then in, in all kinds of, of cool stuff that you, you don't hear about in the news because you think that all we do is kill one another. But uh, there is a big, big uh, movement uh, for peace within um, the Arabs and the Jews of the Middle East. So um, I, I, I took part in most of the organizations. But by the age of 19, I felt and, and really wanted to become a part of Israeli society. I really wanted to enable myself to one day go into politics I really wanted to have my doors remain open to me. And my understanding at the age of 19 was that um, not going to the army would close many doors to me and uh, will stop me uh, from being able to, you know, to eventually go into politics or to go into 
to anything within Israeli society because Israeli society is very much surrounded around the army and a mandatory service for women as well, right? Uh-huh. So, um, so that was the decision that I received at the age of 19. Mm-hmm. Um, now at the age of 32, uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of difficult for me to imagine, but uh, I do not regret, regret going at the age of 19. Um, but right now, I probably wouldn't have gone. Yeah. I would have, I would have rather, um, you know, probably uh, spend some time in jail instead. Mm. Uh, do you think in your lifetime you will see the end of this mandatory uh, military service? And are there people who actually don't go and just leave the country? There are a few people that don't go and leave the country, and there are a few. I'm not sure about numbers, but there are people also who decide to refuse, and then they sit in jail. Wow. Um, but yeah, courageous people. I'm very impressed with them. Um, do I think that in my lifetime, um, the army will be abolished? Um, it's my hope. It's my hope. Um, it's easier for me to imagine that there will be peace mm-hmm. in my lifetime than for me to imagine that the army will be um, abolished. So I actually, I do believe that peace is going to come and I do believe that it's going to come in my lifetime. Um, um, I do think that there will still be, you know, by the end of my life, I think that there will still be some sort of, 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 of a a body of, of people um, that are being paid to carry weapons and uh, hopefully to only protect rather than, uh, you know, attack. Um, but yeah, uh, I, I'm very optimistic. I'm very extremely optimistic. Uh, every year, another school opens in Israel um, for Jews and Arabs. So there are schools throughout the country, Jerusalem, Tel Aviv, the north, the south, that are called hand in hand. And that's something that wasn't there 10 years ago or 15 years ago. But now more and more people are believing that we, you know, that we might as well, we don't have any other, other option. We don't have any other option than to live together. So um, there are actual like schools and they're opening and they're very popular and, and uh, they're, you know, it's people send their children to these schools. So that's a big deal. And, uh, and that just shows us that we're in the right direction. Hmm. Well, I think that makes a, a really sort of perfect segue to uh, start talking about your work as an artist and your work as, as a creative, because this is probably the thing that caught my attention the most in the book was when you said, I envision a future in which people are more creative. And let me tell you what it leads to. More happiness, less suicides, less violence, less wars, more cooperation, more ideas, more literacy, more employment, more creative ideas to protect and nurture the planet, more peace between nations, neighbors, and within oneself. Did I say that? Yes, you did. No, you're, no, you're one, one, are you definitely serious that I wrote? Oh, I, this is, I, I, every book I read, I uh, underline passages and then I take uh, each book after I've finished reading them about a week later and I put everything into Evernote, all the things that I've highlighted, especially if I know I'm going to be talking to somebody. And to me, this was such a perfect segue to start talking about your work as an artist. But where did this notion that creativity uh, will lead to all of these things? Not that I disagree with you. I completely agree as somebody who has, has you know, just written a book about creativity for its own sake. Where did this idea uh, that creativity could lead to all of these things come from? 
I'm still a little um, flabbergasted. Uh, in the <laughs> like it sounded so good. Um, I, that's so fun. Um, if when if you if you can in the remaining uh, time, I would love to have uh, to you know if you have quotes, I would love to have quotes. I'm like because you you see I've I've written by now probably 15 books that have been published and um, I have like three more books that I haven't had the time and courage to publish yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least three, if not four. So, um, so I don't really remember what I write, you know, what, yeah. um, where this notion came from? I don't know. It's obvious to me. Yeah. It's obvious to me. Creativity, you know, it's obvious to me. It's like, uh, it's, it's almost, it's, you know, it's, it's obvious to me. So, mm-hmm. I'm not sure what I, how, you know, how to answer that question. <laughs> yeah, no, fair enough. I mean, it was, that, that to me was probably the most poetic package of the entire, the, the poetic you know, line of the entire book. That was the one that I Instagrammed and shared. And I thought, oh, this is so beautiful. Uh, I want to talk about this notion of creating a masterwork and what goes into it, because I think you gave us some very profound, both career and life lessons, um, ranging from you know, lessons of, of managing our own psychology and our self-worth uh, to actually doing the work itself. And I want to go back to something that you said earlier in our conversation uh, about the fact that you had this sense of, of tremendous confidence in your own abilities uh, as a writer, but then you also just said there are a few books you haven't published yet because you haven't had the courage to. Uh, where, one, how did that confidence develop? Is that something that you developed over time because of your skill or do you feel that you developed the skill because of the confidence? Mm. You know, that, that's such an interesting subject for me because um, oh, it's such an interesting subject for me. I wrote a bunch of books. One of them is about um, creativity. Another book is about, it's called The, the Art of Loving Myself. Um, and another book is called The Fear of Success. Um, many of my books are, are about, the, about, you know, they are the books that I looked for I was hoping to read, and when I found that no one wrote them, I read them, right? Yeah. Uh, so this book that you've read, Masterwork, um, is what I wanted to hear. And it, it tries to instill and to plant this confidence in the reader as a creator and to really explain to the reader that, uh, that all of the masters were once amateurs. I think that uh, Emerson said that. Every great artist was once an amateur. Now, I, now as I'm talking to you, I remember that the book has lots of quotes, right? Mm-hmm. Like every, between every chapter, there's a yep. couple of quotes, right? Okay, good. So um, what's so funny, Srini, is that, there is a, a, I'm not sure if a, if a bipolar quality to me or, um, or a, some, an ambiguity or an ambi quality, so, like, so a dual quality to me. On one hand, I really am very committed to what I write and what I create, and I really believe in what I do. And, and on the other hand, I, I always feel like it sucks and it's horrible. And why would anyone read it? And I, I, it's really, it's a struggle for me to this very day. So, 
So, you know, can, can, you, can you fathom, can you really like understand that I have an amazing confidence and at the same time, I feel totally inadequate and, uh, and, and embarrassed uh, each time that I publish a book. Like, like seriously, like, like hyperventilating, um, quick heartbeats, um, dry mouth kind of physical experience. So um, uh, I'm very embarrassed about the books. I don't even, I, 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 I find it really hard for me to even open them. Mm. So I guess the, the thing that I'm proud of is of, of choosing to deliver. I think that Steve Jobs said that artists deliver. I try to deliver and I try to deliver products that are as good as I can get them at, at a certain point. And um, when it came to paintings, so for about a decade, I, I made a living uh, from selling my paintings in galleries around the world. And those paintings were good. They weren't, you know, I, w- I would tell you that they were the best that I could do. And I remember one artist friend came, come, coming to my studio and saying, you know, you know, this painting is good, but the composition is, is a little problematic. And I would look at the painting and I would tell him, you know, you're actually right. And if I were to do it again, I would paint, I would move the tree a little bit to the right and I would uh, move the house a little bit to the left and put the, the landscape um, in the horizon, like more centered, but up. Uh, and he told, and he would tell me, yeah, exactly. That's exactly what you should do. So, so paint over it or like, or correct that one. And I'm really proud of having developed uh, the, 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 this following attitude. Hmm. And this attitude is, you know, I'm not going to touch it. The next painting that I'm going to do, I'm really going to apply everything that I've learned and I'm going to uh, create a better composition. But this painting is this painting. I'm delivering it. I'm selling it. Bye-bye. Cheers. Bye-bye. And, uh, and next painting, I'm going to get better. And that's one of the things that, I, that happens also with my books. Uh-huh. I, and you, Srini, as well, you can spend days and months and weeks and, and, and years perfecting uh, your book and your book cover and your book blurb and your blah, 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 blah. But um, what I've learned is that... Um, you know, the, the three words, um, aim, ready, aim, shoot, right? Ready, aim, shoot. Yeah? Yeah. So it's better to ready, shoot, aim. <laughs> that, that's how we should, how we should go. Uh, ready, shoot, aim. So just, just like shoot, shoot. I'm like, I, I, so I'm willing to publish a book even when it's not ready. Um, and to get the feedback and then to publish a second edition and to make it better and then a third edition and then to make it even better and, um, and to keep learning, to keep running, to keep, to keep being on a race. So um, my recommendation to you, Srini, and to everyone who is trying to I don't know, write a book or to you know, be creative is to deliver. It's good enough. Deliver. And it's only your first book. 
This is only your first exhibition. This is only your first CD. Don't confuse your second CD and your first CD. These are, these are different things. Don't try and create your second CD when you haven't released your first. Like release the first and know that it's, it's, go, it's going to suck. You're going to be so embarrassed of it. But in, in the same time, in 20 years, you will, you will kind of be, you will have reminiscence. You, you will kind of look at it fondly. And, and that's, I think, one of the qualities that I've, I was able to learn. So again, I don't find myself being extremely creative. I don't find myself, um, I don't judge myself as being uh, extremely talented. But I think that one of the qualities that I've learned to admire in myself is the ability and the willingness and the courage to deliver even when something isn't ready. And uh, this is good for me to talk to you, Serena, because I'm, I'm hearing what I'm saying at the same time. I'm listening to myself. I'm like, yeah, yeah, because I have, uh, you know, three or four books that are waiting, you know, for fine tuning and stuff like that. And one of them is a book that I wrote three years ago uh, about money, uh-huh. and the history of money. Uh, it's an amazing book, but I'm embarrassed of it. I'm like, I don't think it's good enough. So I'm like, man, oh man, Jonathan, wake up, deliver it. The world needs your creation. The world needs your books. Uh, so that's, that's something that, that I'm trying to learn myself. Um, and again, you know, publishing books, knowing that there are still typos in them uh-huh. and know that they can, you can still like improve the structure and knowing that the cover is not the best cover. Like really many of them change covers or between the, the different editions that I published. Um, uh, it, it's, it really hurts. It really feels like giving birth. Like, like uh, I remember when my wife uh, gave birth, it was painful. <laughs> so um, basically what I've learned is to go through the pain faster not to try and postpone the, the delivery, but to just go at it and to, and to, you know, let it out, let it out, put it out there, put it out there. And, uh, and really, I think that only now, like after 15 books, I think like I'm only now getting better, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, what is your average day? Like what are your daily sort of habits, rituals, routines uh, that enable your working process? See, about, if you asked me about four or five months ago, I would have told you, you know, that um, the most important thing that I do is to sit and uh, apply bum glue. Um, have, you, have you heard of it? Bum glue, it's a really good product. It's mm-hmm. glue that you put onto your bum and then it forces you to sit. <laughs> um, I'm entertaining myself. Um, basically, uh, uh, for for a few years now, I had uh, lots of bum glue, and uh, I uh, have you read uh, Stephen Pressfield's books? Yeah, absolutely. Amazing author. Um, what are the, some t- some of his titles? Um, There's the War of Art, Turning Pro, Do the Work. Um, oh, all of them are. Uh, that those are mandatory reading, I think, for anybody mandatory. to build a creative career. 
I agree. I agree. So he, he he's amazing, uh, and he helped me um, through his writing. Um, and again, um, I think probably the War of Art is is the first one to begin with. Just so good. Um, he helped me with realizing that there is this inner resistance and that uh, I will never feel like it's the right time to be creative. Um, so one of the things that I've learned is that um, focusing and talking a lot about routine and about what I, you know, I've, what I've learned is that it's not the most important thing because because I really like, you know, to organize my calendar and to have 15 minutes of meditation and then half an hour of walking and then uh, um, 17 minutes of visualization and then uh, five minutes of prayer and uh, then eating and then running and then exercising. And uh, I really like all of that. But um, I also know that when I am dedicating myself to a project, to a book or whatever, I try to let it sweep me. I try to let it, you know, take control over my life. Um, and, and that would be, you know, my answer as far as routine goes, um, to spend as much time with bum glue as possible. Um, and when I was painting, and I would paint like five or ten paintings, or sometimes even 14 paintings at the same time, so over a period of several months, I would complete like 14 paintings. Um, I really regarded myself as a small factory uh, of one, of a factory of one man. And uh, it wasn't bum glue, but it was like brush glue. I would have to have the brush in my hand. Mm-hmm. And it's so tempting to have the cell phone in my hand instead. <laughs> but uh, just to, to have this mandatory... Um, I'm going to use difficult words or harsh words, but it's really like raping yourself. It's it's like really forcing yourself to face resistance. Look, look this inner urge to do anything but the thing that you know that you need to do and to look it straight in the eye, which is very frightening. And to just say, I'm going to write right now. And then I sit down and write. And I think that what I'm writing is the most despicable text ever written. It's badly written. It was written before, better by someone else. Why am I even writing it? Who am I to attempt writing a book about Gandhi? Who am I to attempt, you know, English isn't my first language and I'm writing in English. Oh my God, this, this sentence was just an epic fail. And, um, and I, that would be the things that I would experience, but nevertheless, I would still keep working and I would try and have uh, the internet turned off and the world turned, turned off and work. And yeah, up, up about uh, until four months ago, that, was, that, was, that would have been my answer. In the past four months, uh, I feel like God or the universe or intuition is trying to channel something through me and I'm not sure exactly what it is, but um, I've been spending now four months um, writing lots and lots of stuff in my notebook and walking in nature. 
um, being totally unproductive as far as you know my my previous metrics and my previous uh, ways of, of measuring productivity so um, that's what I've been up to in the past four months and, and we'll see where that leads me to so um, who knows Wow. Um, well, I think that makes uh, a really sort of beautiful and, and fitting end to our conversation. So I have one last question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews at the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? It makes something or someone or something unmistakable. I'm going to ask you back a question, okay? Yeah. Uh, give, you know, give me one or two words um, that you would use as synonyms for unmistakable. I think distinctive uh, is the first one that comes to mind um, or different or outstanding in some way. Okay. So you're using unmistakable in, as, a, as a positive mm-hmm. word, right? Like an outlier. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Mm, service, a commitment to service. When someone says that something is trying to, manifest itself through them so when an activist or when a or when a creative person understands that this painting wants to be given birth by this person and that it's not about the ego of this creative person but it's about what this painting can do to others and what how this book can serve others uh, how how this um, social campaign can help someone, how this change in the perception of education can help someone, how this new product can help people. So focusing on that can really transcend someone from being average or mediocre to be, to be unmistakably successful. And, um, and uh, that's something that I try to remind myself constantly. And, and that is that it's not about me. It's not about Jonathan Kislev and about his ego and about his fears. It's about what this book, this painting, uh, this social campaign can do for others. And um, that makes a person unmistakable. Yay! Amazing. <laughs> uh, well, um, you've not disappointed me. This has, has easily been one of my favorite conversations I've had on the podcast all year long. Um, I can't thank you enough for uh, taking the time to join us and uh, share your story and your insights with the listeners. Where can people learn more about you and your work? Um, I would go to um, amazon.com forward slash author forward slash Kislev, K-I-S-L-E-V, um, or just write... On Google, Jonathan Kislev, K-I-S-L-E-V, usually with a hyphen in between. So K-I-S hyphen L-E-V, and you'll be able to find lots and lots of stuff about me. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Marketers and business owners, you've been pining after a certain someone. Your job's on the line. You're desperate for them to like you back. 
here's a word of advice from me. Talking is hot. Just you and them, finally alone, like us two right now. Maybe under the duvet, headphones on, one-on-one. Podcast advertising is proven to be one of the best ways to catch their attention. So surprise them while they're tuned in, while the moment's right. Say a line or two that really gets them going. Next time, if you want to win over your special someone and build some brand love, experiment with something new. Just focus on your voice. Advertise on more than 100,000 podcast shows with Acast. Head to go.acast.com slash closer to get started. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.